But um, I want to uh, have an introduction this morning um, that I think will be an encouragement to you, Brenda, and you, the Weasts. So I, I asked a well-known scholar by the name of John Anderson uh, <laughs> to uh, a couple questions about the book of Acts. And John preached the book of Acts. Some of you were here as he was finishing that. But John sent me his intro from the book of Acts from 2009. And on his prayer request and praise report, here's what it said in 2009. That he, he had been out of town, I guess. And he said, uh, a praise is, I want to thank the Lord for the men that preached while I was gone. Matt Johnston, Brian Marchie, Mark Ragg, and Matt Stanchek. Praise Dave and Kenzie Atwell's wedding (laughs) and several families are going to be moving to town in the fall. The Zemecks, the Oxfords, and Brian and Tanya Arnold. Now, think about that. Think about that. Nine years ago, John opened up this book And why I thought that was so illustrative for even the book of Acts is the book of Acts is all about church planting, the strengthening of the church, the training of men, the gospel going forth. Nine years ago, Brian Marchi, who's now been sent out, Brian and Julie's son-in-law, is a pastor sent out, just like the book of Acts, down in plantation. Matt Johnston's a missionary in Geneva, Italy. I spoke to him two days ago when I FaceTimed with Dave McDallas from his home. <laughs> sent out, trained, equipped, and sent out. Mark Ragg, church planted in Venice, Florida. And his church is now close to 300 people. They've merged with four other churches. He started out with 18 people seven years ago. Matt Stanchek's the pastor down in plantation. We planted him down there with Brian. Dr. George Zemeck's been the dean of our seminary and trained men. The Oxfords are now on staff here, and Brian and Tanya Arnold is now on staff here, trained and equipped and is our high school pastor. And the book of Acts is all about training and equipping men for ministry and the church being strengthened and the gospel going forth. And I thought, how illustrative (laughs) for our introduction. It was interesting, too, When you think about the book of Acts, why do you guys think I would choose the book of Acts? Why would I choose the book of Acts as our next book after 1 Peter? What do you guys think? We can talk about it. What do you think? Anybody? Big group. We can be brave. Mark. We just uh, talked about going through trials and how you endure through those. So now that we've endured or hopefully have cultivated a heart of endurance, we can continue excelling still more and strengthening what we've done. Yeah. So it's true. It's true that I want you to excel still more. Probably any book in one sense accomplishes that, but it's true, that's on my heart. But why the book of Acts for this group at this time? Yes, Nick. Um, We just ended talking about how important it is to be in a church like a good shepherd. Now we need to see a model what an early church following that biblical model looks like. Man, so good. I've been reading my notes. It was really depressing looking at John's notes. Just John's kind of a mutant. He can like retain everything in his mind and then just deliver it. He had like five pages of chicken scratch. I have 20 pages. That's the difference difference between John and I. (laughs) So what else? Somebody else? That's right on. Yeah. 
Jonah, and then Rebecca. Uh, just the, the way the church is going today, how twisted it's become from the original church in Acts. So kind of bringing our minds back to that in light of current church. That's exactly right. You guys know my heart. Yes, Rebecca. Yeah, it's good preparation. I only have two weeks of prep, but we'll get them going. It's interesting, um, Sam sent a quote out that is right in line with why I chose Acts. The reason John Anderson chose Acts is why I chose Acts. And it comes down to this. Nothing is more important in one sense than how all of you come to understand the church. And the book of Acts is all about the local church. Dr. MacArthur said this recently, I'm so glad for the revival of Reformed theology in our day, but it is, terribly, it is a terribly incomplete movement because they have such, those that have embraced it, have such an abysmal understanding of ecclesiology, that is, the doctrine of the church. Sometimes don't you feel like we talk about theology, we talk about the Christian life, we talk about the gospel, we talk about sanctification, we talk about family, we talk about evangelism, and the local church kind of gets honorable mention. And yet, the book of Acts, the local church is what it's all about. The expansion and growing of the early church from a group of Messianic Jews turned into what became called Christians, and the church explodes across 30 years right before our eyes. So, it's interesting when we come to a book like this because there's so much to say in an introduction, I'm not even sure all where to begin because I want to download to you basically two months of study in the next 45 minutes or so. But the bottom line is this, beloved. Here's why I want you to study the book of Acts. Here's why you need to know the book of Acts. Here's, here's why I want all of us to be immersed in the book of Acts. And I've come up with basically five notable reasons every Christian needs to have a comprehensive grasp on Acts, according to the apostles. Really, when you say Acts, have you ever thought about why it's called Acts? That's really shorthand. Some of your Bibles may say it. Just turn there. But it's the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles, because it is carrying on from Jesus' ministry. If I could title this book, I think I would call it The Fulfilling of the Great Commission. How does Matthew 28, 18-20, the Great Commission, get fulfilled? The first 30 years of the church on the pages of the book of Acts. So, five notable reasons. I'll give them to you up front, then we'll walk through them. And Mark Murnan, you and I are going to have to interact a little bit about reason two in a moment. The five most notable reasons every Christian needs to have a comprehensive grasp on the Acts according to the Apostles. One, it's intended by Luke to bring such clarity that it inspires greater courage and conviction. It's intended by Luke to bring such clarity that it inspires greater courage and conviction. Let's just, before, instead of doing all five, let's just go to that one first. I want you to turn to the beginning of Luke now. Turn, actually, stay here in Acts. We'll just start here. Then we'll go to Luke. It's important you understand this first point. And I'm tell- here's why I'm telling you it's important. <clears throat> because in preaching the Word of God, every pastor has to come to a conclusion as to what is the occasion of the book. Right? Every, every conversation you have has an occasion. It has a context. Every letter in the New Testament has a context. Every prophecy has a context. Every uh, prophet has a context. There's an occasion that arose. 
So you have to ask the question, why, what was the occasion for the book of Acts? And I would, I would say to you that the occasion for the book of Acts is it should lead in your life to having such clarity about the early church that it inspires you to have greater courage and greater conviction. That is to say, while the book of Acts is not prescriptive, do this or do that, the descriptive nature, its narrative, you should leave every sermon saying something like this. That was helpful. That was clear based on what the Word of God said. And now I have more courage, more conviction, more clarity on how I can walk better with Christ. Every sermon ought to conclude with greater courage and greater conviction. Let me show you that. Look at Acts 1. 1. The first account I composed to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus, look what he says, began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. Let's read it again. This first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up to heaven. So there's this guy, Theophilus. Who is he? Go back to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 1. This is going to be really fun for all of us because we're in Luke with Pastor Jerry and we'll be in Acts in here with me. I'm going to tell you a couple interesting things about this. Theophilus just came up in Acts 1 and he said, I'm writing to you about all that was given for Jesus, that Jesus did and what He taught. And then look at Luke again. The author of Acts is Luke and here's Luke again. Look what he says, Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us from the beginning, who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. See, that is Luke. He got much of information from Peter and from Mark and others. He was not an eyewitness. It seemed fitting for me as well. This is Luke writing. Having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, notice, to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent. Notice the name. Theophilus. What's the purpose of his writing to Theophilus? Same guy we just saw in Acts 1. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Theophilus is documented here as someone that is excellent. Um, I'll talk about that more in a moment. But he's documented as someone that has been taught. Notice verse 4. Most excellent Theophilus, you've been taught these things, and yet I want to write to you in such detail that it leads to something in your life so that you may know the exact truth. Pause there. Book of Acts, book of Luke, in the early church traveled around as one canon, we might say. They were both together. So in your first roughly hundred years of, of you know, the, the early days of the church, the, the Gospels, you might say, Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke, oftentimes would have, when they were sent around his letters, the book of Acts attached to the Gospel of Luke. Over time, as the canonization process came together and uh, the letters were going around, the four Gospels came to travel together typically, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then letters were being distributed out. And the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, became its own independent narrative, not distinct from in the sense that 
They were trying to separate as if Luke didn't write it, but they wanted to give it its own career, we might say. And so the book of Acts then becomes its own entity in one sense, and yet, for the purpose of this point, you've got to understand when you read Luke 1 and you read Acts 1, the same purpose is happening. So the reason that Luke wrote to Theophilus the book of Luke and gave him this detailed account, and he wrote the book of Acts is the exact same reason. And it's in verse 4. Look at it. So that you may know the exact truth. That word there, beloved, for the exact truth is that which brings security. That which brings stability. To have information that leaves you without doubt. Clarity that leads to conviction. It's legal terminology. Something you can rely on. So, here's what happens sometimes. When we hear historical narrative, we hear... Uh, we're going to read about something that's been done in the past that's, that's history, we oftentimes begin to think about, oh, that'll be good, I'll learn some facts, I'll learn the history of the church, I'll learn about its origin, I'll learn about its beginning, I'll see the early days, the first basically 29 years of the church, and it's just left with information. I would contest to you that every verse you read on the pages of the book of Acts, is to lead you to be someone that comes to an exact truth. That is to say, you come to conviction. You, you come to have greater clarity. You come to be more convinced of things. And all of a sudden, history starts to instruct you on how you should live now. So the book of Acts becomes instructive. It, the occasion of the book is to strengthen your conviction so you know how to live now and stay, what we might say, on your mission as a Christian. It's to encourage believers with a detailed account of what God did in the Gospel in the book of Luke, His death, burial, and resurrection, and then after the Great Commission, what happened in the early church. So we might say this. It would miss the point of a sermon if I just delivered you information and we didn't end up being exhorted on how we can know more about what they did and how we can live in light of that. That's the first thing you should know about the book. Everything you read in the book ought to make you have greater convictions about the church, the gospel, the Great Commission, and how you should be spending your time. I want you to think about something. What if the book of Acts was not just meant for encouragement, but the book of Acts was a legal briefing? Mark, can we talk for a second? Sure. So, Mark, what's your job? Uh, I'm an investigator. You're an investigator. Okay, so... When you're doing an investigation and someone gives a court briefing, what is the purpose of a court briefing? To uh, advise the court as to the facts of the case and the arguments for it. And so the intent of the court briefing is to accomplish what? Uh, Communicate facts and make an argument. For for whatever their view is, right? So if if they're for the defendant... They're going to try and make a case on why he's innocent. Correct. And if they're for the prosecution, prosecution, they're going to give a court briefing. So here's what's interesting about the book of Acts. Not only is it meant to lead to courage and conviction, but I would contest you, and I'm about to document this for you, that the book of Acts was Luke right into Theophilus, who was probably in some measure... Um, at some status, maybe even a legal status, to give a defense for why the Apostle Paul was not who everybody said he was, that he was some wacko heretic that they ought to execute because he's disrupting society. 
The book of Acts is actually a legal briefing as well. Notice Luke 1. Most, verse 3. I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus. That's, a, that's language, excellent right there, Theophilus, for a dignitary, someone in authority, someone that probably has some sway, someone that's got a legal background, some might say. Luke's writing to him, notice, the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And he writes it in Luke, and then he writes it in Acts. And he's writing that, friends, to try and help make a case to defend the Apostle Paul. Do you know that in the book of Acts, there's eight chapters committed to the Apostle Paul when he's on trial? And when he's on trial, the letter ends with him under house arrest, and he hasn't yet been cleared? In fact... Let me just give you some little pointers here. I was looking at John Anderson's notes and he holds the same view. In one sense, the purpose of this book is to give a positive judicial decision um, uh, to give positive perspective about why Paul wasn't who they said he was in Ephesus to Galeo, in Jerusalem to Felix and Festus and Herod. And it was to go across the whole Roman Empire to show that who they said Paul was was not the truth. And here's what's interesting about that. When you, when you think about a legal briefing being given for the purpose of defending someone's case, then you know that someone's going to great deal detail to make an apologetic. And think about now Luke for a second. He would know that Theophilus was going to take that bring it to probably Paul's defense, and then before all the people in all the land and everyone that was prosecuting Paul, they would have before them Luke's gospel and the account of the first 30 years of the church. So it's evangelistic. Even if the pagans that he stood before denied, I don't believe that, I don't believe that, the facts were irrefutable that there was a dead Messiah who they say rose, who was transforming people's lives by the power of the Word, and all across Europe, all across Asia Minor, people were being transformed, and there was a movement that was happening because of this dead Messiah who they say rose, and Paul's life was transformed from basically a Hitler of the day, prosecuting and reaching pursuing Christians to this bold evangelist who gave his life and was willing to stand before the courts for his cause. All of a sudden, the book of Acts becomes a detailed account that we should even be thinking about. Everything we learn in Acts is to show off the power of the gospel and to give an apologetic to even unbelievers. When we're talking to people about the gospel, when we're talking to people about why we believe the power of the word, we could open up the book of Acts or tell them, why don't you go read the book of Acts and see what God does when He transforms a heart and changes an entire culture around because of one man and his ragtag followers. John Anderson says this, he says, but particularly the purpose here was Paul's defense before Felix and Agrippa. Paul was still under house arrest and in change in Rome, and he wanted Theophilus to understand the dynamic of the whole Christian mission, the existence of the church, for Paul to be tried fairly. And remember, 
he was being accused by the Druze in Jerusalem for crimes of heresy. The court must hear how the institution of the church began. Think about that. In the courtroom, Mark, could you imagine? In the courtroom, let's make a case. We want to show you a dead Messiah that we say rose. We want to show you how the church began. We want to show you the murder of Stephen. We want to show you the preaching of Peter. We want to show you the conversion of Cornelius, or the the God-fearing Jew who embraces the gospel. We want to show you the conversion of Paul. We want to show you the gospel spread out and people be transformed. In a courtroom. That's thrilling. The court must hear how the institution of the church began, how it spread, and how it transitioned from one humble assembly of Messianic Jews to a global, universal, Gentile-inclusive entity that provoked the jealousy of Christ-rejecting Jews. (laughs) This was documented, proven, and beyond the tampering of any bias in Luke's accurate and certain presentation of the truth for the work of the church. Facts are stubborn things. And to think about that when you're studying this book, it ought to empower you with your apologetic and give you greater courage and conviction and hope in the power of the gospel to change a heart. And when you talk to unbelievers or you talk to people that are refuting the facts, you just take them to the historical narrative, just like Luke did when he wrote it to Theophilus to defend Paul's case. You say, well, if Christ is, if Christ is proven who He is, it's just going to make them angry. They still may kill Paul. Maybe, but remember at this time. The date of this book is probably 61-62. We just studied 1 Peter, which was 64 AD. July 17th of 64 is when Nero set fire to Rome. And after that, Christianity became illegal from a whole entire political level and the entire nation was against Christians. But at this time, it was the Sanhedrin and the Jews and the Pharisees and all of those of the religious elite. They had the ears of the emperor, right? They were the law keepers of the day, but they didn't have sway over all that happened in society yet. And so they... But it's interesting, isn't it? They were able to get away with a lot. I was thinking about that. They were able to stone Stephen and be fine. They were able to persecute Christians. Paul was able to go on the hunt for Christians. And yet from a massive political level, they were not yet able to have everyone be against Christians, the entire nation. And so Paul being in a courtroom, there was still a chance that they could say, you may say he's an idiot. You may say he's a seed picker, like they call him in Acts 17. You may say he's crazy for what he believes, but the facts are irrefutable. He's done nothing to ultimately disrupt society. He believes that he trusted in the true messianic, the true message of the Messiah long foretold. He hasn't abandoned what Jewish teaching was. He's actually embracing what they should be believing. And they're saying he's a heretic and he's, he's going to lead to the erosion of the law and society. We're saying actually the facts are irrefutable. You may deny Christ, but he trusts in the real Christ that the Jews should be looking to as well. Make your choice. A couple years later, Nero ends up killing Paul, it seems, from church history. But at this time, they were still trying to get him off the hook. But what I think is great, when we get to those portions of, uh, of Paul before the authorities, I think it's great that we'll get to see Paul have no problem documenting who Christ is and standing with courage and conviction no matter the cost. So... The second reason this book is such an encouragement to us, go back to Acts 1, is the purpose of this book is to document irrefutably an apologetic of why the Christian message is true and why Christ is the Messiah and you may reject it, but the facts are irrefutable. So, reason one we study this book, it's intended by Luke to bring clarity 
that inspires greater courage and conviction. It's intended by Luke to make a case for Christ and Christianity. You guys have any questions on that? That second point? You ever thought about that before? Any thoughts on that? Okay. Third, it's the beginning of church history and connects us back to our origin. It's the beginning of church history and connects us back to origin. What's the danger if you're disconnected from where you originated? What's the danger? You historians, you that like to read history. What do history buffs say about the danger of not knowing history? You What's that? You're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past if you don't know. But what if you come and you're part of a movement, you're part of something significant that you don't know its origin or its purest form? What's the danger? You could stray, right? What's that? What were you going to say? What were you? Oh, that's like if you don't know the origin of something, you could like get all into it and then realize, oh my goodness, this is bad. Yeah. One secular writer, I was just looking up comments about history. He said, if you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know it is a part of a tree. (laughs) It's imperative that you know where you came from. It's imperative you know your roots. It's imperative you know the convictions that drove the very earliest days of the church. I want you to think about something. Everyone in this room, if you know Christ, you're a recipient of some faithfulness that reaches back to the book of Acts and before. Why don't you think about something? I just want you to connect you on why you want to understand Acts. So, those of you that love and know Christ and you're someone shared the gospel with you, right? Someone shared the message of Christianity with you. You responded in faith and repentance. Before that person shared the gospel with you, either their parents or someone shared the gospel with them, right? They had to hear the gospel message. The word had to keep going forth. And before that, someone... Before them, right? And before that, someone before them. And before that, someone before them. And then if we go back, we can hit the Reformation in the 1500s. And there was all kinds of faithfulness across Europe that brought the gospel to America. So you could be attached back into Reformation because there's one message that saves. And then before that, you might be, where was the gospel with John Wycliffe and the Lollards in the 1300s? And then what about a thousand years of darkness? Well, the gospel was somewhere because it didn't emerge from nothing. God's always building His church. Even though the Dark Ages came, there wasn't the printing press, the ability for people to read, but the gospel was still going forth. And before that, you get back to 313 when Constantine makes Christianity legal. And prior to that, you had 251 years of illegal Christianity. Well, someone shared the gospel during the times of Constantine, and someone during the Dark Ages, and someone during the Reformation, and someone before that. And those people came from local churches, and those local churches were planted. And people ministered in those churches, and pastors shepherded those churches. And those attached back to 91 AD when John finishes his last letter in Revelation in First and Second John, and Third John. And before that, you've got the New Testament letters. And before that, you get into this place called Acts in 62. And all the way back to 33 or so when Christ is killed. Think about something. All the way back, there's been one message, one man, one mantle carried generation to generation. And the book of Acts gives us the purest form to attach us back to the very origin of where the church was born in Acts 2. You can read church history all you want, but you better start in Acts 2 if you're going to read church history because that's where it begins. I love thinking about studying Acts because it's going to take us back to the, the, the emerging of its origin when the church is born. I love that. 
to think about that. We are attached back to Acts in its purest form. And as you've said, if you don't know your origin, you're in danger of drifting. You know why I love that too? The church today is so full of games, isn't it? And gimmicks and shows and lights and bells and whistles and compromise and pragmatism and shallow teaching. And you know what they did in the book of Acts? They gathered for the apostles' teaching. They ate meals together. They were equipped by the word. Then they went out and shared Christ in their sphere of influence. And they showed back on Sunday and they were equipped again. And they showed up some Bible studies during the week and were equipped some more. And then people discipled them. And then they found lost people and they shared Christ. And when God saved them, the word kept going forth. Sounds like a church. So all of a sudden, people go, ah, what was going on in the book of Acts? It is an interesting time. It's true. We've got the Spirit. You say, well, Darren, you can't look at everything in the book of Acts because, one, the Spirit is coming with His permanent indwelling ministry. That's true. I believe that the Spirit was temporary indwelling and the book of Acts is permanently indwelling and you see the Spirit go forth through the book. You even have a God-fearing Jew who saved a Jew who hadn't yet got the Spirit probably in Acts 10 with Cornelius. You've also got the sign gifts that are active. So you've got the apostolic message going forth and the miraculous gifts, tongues, healing, apostolic office. Those are all in action. They affirm the message. It's true we don't have those going on anymore. But all the core things that were going on in the church, same as we're doing today. We have to go back to the Acts to see our purest origin. Do you know something else? If you don't know where you come from and what you're connected to, then you pass on to the next generation something that's limited. You have to pass to the next generation all the doctrine. What does Paul say? 1 Timothy 1. Pass on what? The entire and complete deposit of truth. That means that whenever you're discipling someone, you have an obligation to pass on to them historical Christianity. From Acts to now, from the church to now, and then back to their Old Testament and the promises that were given. But the church age that we live in, we have to be taking people back and saying, the church was born in Acts 2, and I want you to see its purest form, we might say, or its earliest form in its first 30 years, and let's watch it grow and mature. But you do see in the book of Acts that even though something's in its origin, and it might be its earliest inception, it's clunky, it's new beginnings, right? Like everything. The church has some bumps. We'll see that. Okay, next. It's intended by Luke to bring clarity that inspires conviction. It's intended by Luke to make a case for Christ and Christianity. It's the beginning of church history and connects you back to your origin. And it's this. It's the linchpin between the Gospel and the New Testament. Let me ask you something. What do you know about the Apostle Paul outside of Acts? What's that? Yeah, but what do you know about his life? Acts. What do we know about Peter's life? No, from the Gospel. But we would be limited on all of our New Testament letters in one sense, who the author was and why he was so significant and what he did. How about the historical background of the book to the Philippians, the book to the Corinthians, the book to the Ephesians and the surrounding churches, the Colossians, the Galatians. Do you know where you get your historical background for all of those letters so you can see the backdrop of them? Philippians, Acts 16.12. Thessalonians, Acts 17.1. Corinth, Acts 18.1. Ephesus, Acts 18. And on and on. How about Timothy's ministry? How would you know about him? Acts. And a couple comments in the book of First and Second Timothy. 
We learn about Paul. We learn about the historical background. All the stuff that you find so much in your New Testament letters finds its historical background. Here's how you want to think about Acts. 30 years of church history, and I just slot in Thessalonians, and I slot in Philippians, and I slot in Corinthians, and I slot in you know, Galatians, and Acts 15, and on and on. And you go back, and all of a sudden, the Acts fills out all the letters that you read. So, studying Acts informs your understanding of the letters. One commentator says this about the Gospel and Acts and the significance of it. He says this, About the same time as the four Gospels were gathered together to form one collection, another collection of Christian documents was being made, the collection of Paul's letters. These two collections, they were called, the Gospel and the Apostle, make up the greater part of the New Testament. But there was a hiatus between the two collections were it not for this second volume on, quote, the history of Christian origins, Acts. That's the volume we call Acts. Acts played an indispensable part in relating the two collections to each other. As regards to the Gospel collection, Acts forms its general sequel, as it's from the first, the proper sequel, to one of the four documents making up the third Gospel. As regards to the Pauline collection, Acts provides all the narrative background. Do you realize that if you, if you go and you study Matthew 28 and someone says to you, hey, I want to be a Great Commission church. I want my, your friend says to you, I go to this church and we're all about the Great Commission. You should go, oh great, tell me what that looks like. And if they start to describe something different than how it looked in the book of Acts, then they've missed the Great Commission because Acts is right after the Great Commission was given. It's an indefensible case that connects us all the way to our New Testament, all the way to our letters. Now, I want to show you something cool here. Next point. Next reason. It's intended by Luke to include clarity and conviction. Intended by him to be indefensible. Connects us to church history. It's the linchpin between the Gospels and the New Testament. And how about this, beloved? Its structure in the entire book is intended to highlight the Word's power and our mission. If you say, where should I spend my time? What should I do with my life? How should I now live? What is the Word's role in the life of the church and missions? The book of Acts is all about the power of the Word and our mission. I want to show you something. I want you to fly through Acts with me here. There's a refrain in Acts that you can't miss that sums up the whole book. And as we look at these passages, I want you to notice three themes, okay? You've got God using a bunch of nobodies, uh, attorneys, uh, an attorney, some ex-confused fishermen, uh, you know, some, some other confused guys, and a whole bunch of people that he marvelously saves and throws into his work and uses his word with a bunch of nobodies to show off somebody Christ for the expansion of the gospel and the exploding of the church. That's what you're going to see. But I want you to notice even the theme of the word being the forerunner. Acts 2.47. Look at what it says. Acts 2.47. This is so sweet. Watch this. Here's the refrain. Let's start in verse 46. Day by day, continuing in one mind in the temple and breaking bread house to house. There it is. Bible study, fellowship, discipleship. They were taking meals together. You guys might do that at lunch today. With gladness and sincerity of heart. 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And look at this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Gospels being preached. People are discipling. People are meeting with people. People are evangelizing. God's saving people. And people are being added to nothing? No. Added to the church. Acts 6 7. Flip over. Same refrain. It's a transition in the book. The word, the word of God kept on spreading. What's spreading across Asia Minor? What's growing the church, beloved? What's it say? The what? The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Somebody knew them. They were accounted for. They were called disciples. They were being added to the church. Greatly increased in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Even unbelieving Roman, Romanish, we might say, we might call them Roman Catholics now, but Pharisees, Sadducees, Jews who hated the gospel, Sanhedrin, were coming to Christ. Gospel goes forth, people are meeting, people are being discipled, words going out, church is being added to. He hits another refrain. Look at 931. This is so sweet. Watch this. So the church, central theme again, throughout all Judea, and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Look at this. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. What was happening? Gospel was being preached. People were being discipled. They were meeting together. They were being added to the church. And the Word of God kept going forth and it continued to increase. Acts 12.24 By the way, all these are literary devices in the book where Paul's, where Luke is moving the story along and showing the main theme that ought to drive this entire book. 12.24 What's it say was driving this movement? But the word of the Lord continued to grow. And now he just sums up conversions, churches being planted, people being discipled with all that the word is doing. The word is central. Churches are central. God's using his people. The gospel's going forth. And what's happening? Multiplication through faithful servants. Now look at Acts 16.5. He just keeps going. Are you seeing the theme? So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were what? Increasing in number daily. God's people were being faithful. They were preaching the gospel. The word was going forth. People were being added to what? Club? Being added to some random group? Hey, uh, I'm a Christian now, but I'm no part of a church. What are they being added to? The church. Through the word of God. This is his theme. Now look at Acts 19.20. What's it say, class? What's driving all this? And what's, what's happening? <laughs> the word of the Lord was growing mightily. What's that mean? Churches were being planted. People were being discipled. The gospel was going forth. Sermons were being preached. Souls were being saved. And the word of God, you might say, kept winning. It was unstoppable. Do you realize that by this time, the gospel's gone from Jews. It's gone to the, um, the Samaritans. It's gone to the Gentiles. 
The gospel and the word of God in the church has broken through every sociological barrier, every geographical barrier, every economic barrier. Nothing has stopped the word and his church because Christ made a promise to it and it will not be stopped. And the book of Acts just keeps showing that off again and again. Now look at Acts 28.31. says it again. Speaking of Paul, preaching the kingdom of God. We'll talk about the kingdom, but he's preaching the king's message and to come to the kingdom and respond to the king and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness. And look at this. And the word of God remained unhindered. It just kept blowing through every barrier. So all of a sudden, we go, how do I do church? Where should I go to church? What should a church look like? It should look like a place... It's in the book of Acts. People are being discipled. They're being shepherded. People are being added to the church. The word is central. Preaching is central. Discipleship central. All of a sudden, it's very comforting and encouraging the way body life happens in a church like ours. Not in perfection by any means. But we are doing and accomplishing and focused on and staying on mission on what the early church was focused on. So it's important to see that even the structure of the Acts is to keep you focused. And you know what you don't find in the book of Acts? We can talk about this more. You don't find, it's not that it's wrong for um, Christians to do social care for people. Christians ought to have an open heart and care for people and love them and, and feed people and come alongside them. Those are all good things Christians can do to care for people. But you don't see any social reconstructive ministry. You don't see any social redemption. You don't see any humanitarian efforts happening in the book of Acts. Christians can do that. But the church's job was to be equipped and then evangelize. To be gathered together, have the Word of God poured into them, and then go bring Christ in His truth. So should we do lots of social things to help people? Sure, if it's for the purpose of the gospel. The book of Acts is all about souls and churches being strengthened. So, let's back up. Let's back up for a second. Let's think about that. Here you and I are, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, <laughs> 2,000 years from then, and we wake up every day, and we go to work, right? You go to your school, you go to your sphere of influence, you've got unsaved family members, you've got unsaved friends, um, you've got time that you spend in your week for activities and things, you've got people that are on your heart, you've got things you need to accomplish, you, you've got all the normal things that would happen in the life of people in the book of Acts, and yet, the priority through the book is to see the Word of God go forth, to see souls saved, to see the church strengthened, to spend yourself for souls and the strengthening of the church and the planning of churches and the gospel going forth and letting it break every boundary and every barrier. And you know what it says in the book of Acts? These men were known for upsetting the world <laughs> because of their preaching. So, in conclusion, a couple pitfalls when reading Acts. Hermeneutical pitfalls. Hermeneutics, the art of interpretation. What are some pitfalls? Don't read it purely as prescriptive, but realize some of it's descriptive. I'm gonna, we're going to draw implications, and there's lots to think about, but certain parts of it are giving us historical narrative at a different time in redemptive history, like, for example, the sign gifts, like, for example, the apostolic office that was happening then. That's not happening now. It's not prescribing that, it's describing that. 
realize that there's a transition on the role of the Holy Spirit. So things will happen on how the Spirit operates as the Spirit is going forth from Acts 2 on. That's going to be not normative for today because the permanent indwelling of the Spirit started in Acts 2, but there was Jews that were saved, that we might say were regenerate, that had been influenced and enabled by the Spirit, but had not been permanently indwelled. That happens a few times in Acts. We don't have Jews today, I guess it could happen, who don't know about the Messiah, who've trusted in the promised one that was foretold and had not yet received the fullness of the the Spirit. I, I guess it could be possible if someone was locked away somewhere, had no access to a New Testament, only had their Old Testament, had trusted in the promised seed from Genesis 3. I guess it's possible, but it's not as normative for today. Lastly, don't get lost in the trees... Remember, this is part of a larger context that must be considered. Everything in Acts is dropped into this larger bucket of Luke and Acts. So when we look at things, you always want to have a larger historical narrative that realize everything's looking back to what Christ accomplished and moving forward towards all that would be fulfilled that was promised. So, any questions? We've got ten minutes or so. Yes? Yeah. Time. The time frame of how long some of these things occurred. Oh, did I? I didn't give. Okay. We use it for our church, and what I'm encouraging is. Time frame of how long this was? Yeah, but these are young people, and young people tend to. Yeah, yeah. So the book of Acts covers about 29 years. So roughly 30 years. In the book of Acts, um, that's a great question. It basically starts in sixty, in uh, thirty. Well, we'll see that next week. But it starts in thirty-three, and ends around sixty-one, sixty-two, when Paul's still in prison. So, when you're reading Acts, you're reading a flyby of thirty years. So that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's good. What else? Any other questions? You guys been? Have you guys studied Acts? How many of you have really spent a lot of time studying Acts? A few of you. Yeah. Good. Karina? Nothing? Any other questions on Acts? Anything I said that I need to clarify? I know that was a lot of data. Yes, Rebecca? Yeah, when we're, when we're in Acts, basically uh, 13, 14 through 20, we're going to see Paul's missionary journeys and we'll see him in the writing of his letters and the occasions for his letters. If you want to break the book up, Peter is 1 to 12, Paul is 13 to 28, basically. Peter is the main character. Uh, a lot of commentators will say that Luke had a, a, a fascination with Paul and Luke was with Paul. There's a bunch of we statements in the book of Acts where Luke is traveling with Paul. It seems he really looked up to Paul because the book of Acts... Paul's really spoken about as this hero uh, without, <clears throat> without blemish. When Paul talks about himself in the letters, he usually talks about himself with a great degree of weakness. So some commentators would say, uh, in many ways, Paul was a, a bit of a historical hero for Luke watching his life. Yeah, Mark. Um, historically, it ends in Paul's house imprisonment yep. uh, in Rome, and yet 
uh, and the prison letters indicate that he is anticipating his release. Yep. He is, is he in fact released? And are the letters to Timothy then written years later at a second in prison? You know, I don't know. What do you think? Have you studied it? No, I was just curious because it ends up on a fairly optimistic note, and he's writing to uh, Philemon to, uh, hey, prepare a home for me. I expect to be released. Yeah. And then there's some other, it sounds like there's some others, but he ends up in prison in a dungeon in Rome. Right. Well, so was, I'm not sure how that. Yeah, so six, basically, <clears throat> that would happen in the next two years because he was probably killed under Nero in 64. Summer, end of the summer, I don't know, somewhere in there, I would guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. If you think about Acts ending, and then uh, Peter's letters are written, the book of Hebrews is written, you know, so you've got some letters after that. I don't know, I'll look into that. That's a great question. Yeah, Dave. Any other, uh, I guess, resources? You know, you talk about this being like the beginning of church history. Yeah. If you want to fill out, you know, I know, you know, maybe non biblical, but other helpful resources for, you know, in and around that area as well, books that you've read? Or... Yeah, there's, um, there's, they're difficult to read sometimes, but if you, uh, what's the name of them? Uh, there's a volume on the emperors, I have on my shelf, um, that deals with Claudius and deals with Nero, and it basically talks about the Roman Empire, so you can get a real good historical background on what was going on, the bankruptcy of the monarchy of sorts at that time, the emperors, their life, um, the culture of what was going on throughout Rome and throughout all of Asia Minor. I can't remember. you know the name of that? Anybody in here? Anybody read it? I have it on my shelf. I'll get it to you. But then you can read the historical background. Dude, there's several books that cover that so. Yeah, I've got I've got one significant volume that covers everybody, all all the Caesars. Yeah. From Christ, the history of the church from Christ to Constantine. Mm. That might be good. Yeah. Fascinating insight. And more of the traditions, obviously, not scripture, mm -hmm. but derived a lot from scripture and personal Yeah. Evidence. Yeah. I wish John Anderson's old sermons were recorded, but they don't start till like Acts 9 or something. Those have been good in his introductory material. He's such a historian. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Yep. It really it just gives a clear image of the, the bigger picture of what it looks like to be part of an actual local church and ministry and it's full picture. Yeah. Yeah, you don't find too many college and career ministries in the book of Acts. <laughs> the reason we do <laughs> No, but it's true, we are one part of a larger body. This is a unique way we try and shepherd. So let's pray, time's gone. Next week, I'll be in verses 1 to 6. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word, the clarity of it. I know this was a lot of information. It's exciting for us. It's, it's just a good introduction to help us think about what we're heading into. And may you bless our study uh, in the many weeks ahead. In your name, amen. Dismissed.